All right. How's everyone? Yeah? Good? So quiet. Is it because the, the songs were like introspective or what's the what's the, the quiet? I mean your shirt's making me thirsty, number one. Let's let's be real honest about ourselves right there. Just fine. It's fine. Y'all know me too well to do that though. What's going on here? <laughs> um, okay, so a few things I want us to I wanna ask you and then I want us to get into it because there's a little bit to cover. Um, you need like two or so people. Where have you seen God at work this week in your life or in someone's life around you? It's like in my ear. Anyone? Hi. Hmm. Okay, don't say too much, man. Like, be careful. Y'all are both looking at each other like, ah, we don't know what it did to us. I love it. That's great, man. Oh, that's cool. Sounds good. Sounds good. I like it. <laughs> oh, yes. Awesome, okay. What else? Anyone else? Yeah, really, uh, just realizing, like, I guess so, I'm mid-30s, right? You're like a kid, and then you're like a teenager, and you're like, oh, one day I'm going to be like an adult, and then, and now, you know, I have like a wife and a child, and, uh, it's like a tough thing to admit areas where you still have to grow because for the longest time you had a lot of grown-ups telling you like, well, finally one day when you will mature, you'll understand, you know. All lies. right no i understand that i think too I, i'm not i'm not trying to say you're not correct you should sit in that and rest in that and let it change you if it needs to make you know it should feel bad if it needs to like there, there should be conviction that's fine but i bet you 27-year-old Jonah would have even handled it differently. You know what I mean? Like, I know we don't, we don't realize that we're in the, in the situation and when we 
fail again or we don't respond the way we want. But we, we easily forget how some things were such a big deal that now we're like, you know what I mean. So I think, you know, you know what I'm saying. Time for another one. Anybody else? What's God doing around you? You've seen God at work in your life? All right. So this weekend, um, we were, and this kind of plays in, but kind of not. I was talking to Jonah a little bit about it. And I know I've said this to y'all like 38 times. I'm overly thankful, though, that y'all, um, as a church, let me uh, have a job that is very time-consuming and sometimes difficult and sometimes requires more work than, like, you know. Then I get to spend sometimes with uh, Church at East, to be honest. And so this weekend we had a, a wonderful Habitat Day in Smithville, Texas, which is a town I'm in love with in love with right now. It's like the cutest, oh, sweetest exhale of a town that I want to move to, but Lily doesn't want to. So we're, we're working on that though, but it's cool. But we, uh, so we're building a house there and I'm just reminded again and again that our call as just people, but then specifically just the things I love and the culmination of parts of my life, that I get to have a job that produces justice feels good. And a job where we, I was telling Jonah, the houses we produce, I'm not like pitching Habitat either, but like the houses we produce, I I could never build for myself or afford or have. And our clients for sure never, ever would have a chance for like an overly energy efficient, overly like material centric, overly, I mean, just there's no, there's no chance. And so to be able to do that and to be able to say, you deserve something I also cannot have, but we're going to do it with excellence for you. It just makes me so glad and thankful to y'all, too, to like allow me to do that and let the guilt be minimal at most for me to be able to do that. It's nice. So I just appreciate it again. And just was reminded with 40 people on a site really trying to do good and sometimes doing really good and sometimes needing to be put on um, probation for th- certain things. Like, oh, you're on cheating probation because that's not the way we do it. But... It went well. It went well. So I'm just appreciative. Okay? All right. Let's turn to Acts 18. Uh, We need to get after it. So what happened last week in Acts 18? Where were they? Where was um, this crew of people that are going to teach that Jesus is the way? What town were they in? It probably says it like in a heading. In 18. As 18 begins. Corinth. Okay, what is Corinth like? Wild place. What'd you say? Very sexy. Pretty terrible. Very what? Yeah, could be sexy. Depends on probably what you like, but yeah, could have been. Actually, there's something for everyone. Something for everyone in that realm in Corinth. You can say it out loud. I just might not repeat it on this. Um, so what else? What else was Corinth like? What else was Corinth like? Was it a desolate place? It was a port port city. There were two major ports. So it had um, a lot of movement in this city. So it wasn't a stagnant place. You would have people move in and out of Corinth. You would have deliveries from all over the world in Corinth, which is pretty amazing. Um, Going to and from Europe, to and from Asia, um, to other parts of Africa. Corinth was like the place for goods to enter 
in that part of the world and for goods to be transferred. So, again, you think about cities like that at the time, big deal, okay? A lot of different kinds of people, very diverse. Um, it was financially, I think my son just growled. It was a financially viable town, a lot going on. Also, interesting, it was already, I didn't say this last week, it was already at that time an ancient city, which is pretty cool. To think about 2,000 years ago, Corinth was like an old city. Just pretty amazing. Um, so anyway, they were in Corinth, and who does, who does Paul meet there and kind of take along with him? It's a couple. Yes, Priscilla and Aquila. What's interesting about them? Yeah, they, made, they were leather workers at tent makers. What? One of them was, yes. Priscilla was a woman, and... That's okay, yeah, everyone thinks Aquila is the... It's okay. So yeah, Aquila and Priscilla... So, also interesting about that is that both were educated, which is interesting in that time. She was probably from a very well-to-do family. Um, her name like suggests that um, there was like a house of Priscilla or something like that at the time. So, like, it's probably wealthy and to-do. Um, oftentimes, too, even in the Jewish literature we have, her name is mentioned first in a lot of situations, which is just very interesting and like worth taking note of. Meaning, she was probably a very powerful human being. Um, again, overly educated for her time, especially for a woman, but for anyone in her time, she would be overly educated and had means. So, again, this couple is, is very impressive. They're fairly powerful, but they're also humble and willing to go and uh, work leather to be a part of the kingdom of heaven that's at hand. Okay? So that's what we know about them. So, as they go through Corinth, we get into uh, to verse 18. All right? So we're in 18. Verse 18, it says this. After this... Paul stayed many days and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Syncre, I don't even know how to say this. I had it in my head and then I forgot it because I looked it up and I don't remember anymore. At Syncre, he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay longer, For a period he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills it, and he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch, and after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phygia, strengthening all the disciples. So let's unpack that a little bit, because if we just read through it, we're going to miss a lot of what's going on here. So he leaves, he leaves and takes Priscilla and Aquila, And then he cuts his hair for he's under a vow. Does anyone have any idea what vow he might be under here? Why does he do this? And why does the Bible want to mention it? What vow might he be under if he's going to cut all his hair? Yes. It's very possible, and a lot of of scholars will say, he more than likely took the Nazarite vow. What is the Nazarite vow? Does anyone know some of the things in it? It's long, but there's like three main things that we know now. Or most of us would. Do we know what it is? One's probably you don't cut your hair, because he cut it, right? So you don't cut your hair for a while. Most of the time, it's around a year. Sometimes it's more. So you wouldn't cut any of your hair. So he would, he would be wooly. What else? No drinking. You wouldn't touch the grape. Or you wouldn't be near the vine, sometimes they would say. So you wouldn't drink. What else? 
And you wouldn't go near a dead body. Interesting one. We can get to that another time. There's a reason, but it's, yeah, it's interesting. So he's probably under this vow. Oh, I know. So crazy. So silly. So he's under this vow, which means a few things about Paul at the time. Number one, he's, he's under a very Jewish vow, okay? That means he is still holding Jewish customs. Now, a lot of people will talk about Paul like he was leaving his Jewishness and going towards being a Gentile or going towards that faith full force and completely remaking himself. That was not always true. He held to normal feasts. He held to a vow that he made for himself. No one makes you do that. A Nazarite vow is something that was rare. It was rare enough it was worth mentioning here just as he was going about life. Okay? So it's not like something that everyone would aspire to or everyone would try to do. So again, he is, and this is going to sound trite and a terrible way to say this, he's still very Jewish. And that's important. It's important for a lot of reasons. Number one, he still holds to a custom and to a history and can relate to others. That's number one, and I think it's impressive. Number two, he is still trying to be all things to all people and is able to speak in synagogues partly because he is still holding to Jewish customs. He's not throwing off his Jewishness because he doesn't need to. And that's important. He doesn't need to throw off his Jewishness to be a Jesus follower, just like the Gentiles didn't need to throw off their Gentileness to be a Jesus follower. Just like you and I, our hopes and dreams that we have, our backgrounds, our histories, if our parents are married or not, if they were awesome or not, the town we're from, the sins we were a part of, the life that we lived, they are a part of us. And yes, we change from the inside. We just sing a song about changing from the inside and changing our outward actions. But God still wants us to be who we are and takes us exactly where we are and says, let's continue in this way together. Your Jewishness doesn't keep you from this faith. Your Gentileness doesn't keep you from this faith. My Harltonness doesn't keep me from this faith. Your Metroplexness doesn't keep you from the faith, right? It's, it's a part of us and can stay. And that's important. It's important for Paul to show it. It was important for him to show it to the synagogues. It's going to be important to show it as he goes to Jerusalem. And so he, he holds this part dear and okay and is confident in that in himself. Okay? So, he cuts his hair, and here's what they would do. This is kind of interesting. Um, and a lot of scholars believe that's why he's kind of in a hurry to go up to the church. So when they say he goes up to the church, he's going to Jerusalem. Okay? So he's not just going to the synagogue in town. Up to the church means he's going to the holy place that they would worship. And so what you would do is you would cut your hair for this Nazarite vow, you would shave your beard, cut your hair, and you would go take the hair and you would burn it on the altar. And you would say, this is my, it might be a year, this is my year to you that I held for you. I didn't touch the grape, I didn't touch a dead body, I let my hair grow, I was solely yours, I was wholly yours, have like the remains of this year, even the remains of it, even what's showing in my hair is yours. And they would burn it on the altar. And that was how you would complete your vow. You would say, everything that have, I've worn, everything that's about my 
beard and hair and life, I've given to you. Thank you for it. Here is, here is the completion of my vow. So when he's in Ephesus and the church is like, oh, you should stay with us. You should stay with us. Let's do this. He's like, actually, I, I, need, I need to go fulfill my vow. I need to go do this. I, I need to, I, I know everyone in the world sees him as, as so utterly progressive that he doesn't care about those things, but Paul very much did. He goes and takes his hair, lays it on the altar, experiences time with the church, and then where does he go after that? What's it say again? Where does he go? Well, he goes first, he goes up to the church, then he goes down to Antioch. What's important about Antioch? Yeah, that's where he was going to church originally, right? Him and who? Barnabas? You remember? They were church there. It was one of the first incredibly diverse churches. Right. They had Gentiles there. Some people had means. Some people were poor. There were people from Africa there. There were people from Asia there. There were Jews there. There were Greeks there. It was a very diverse, interesting, like first of its kind that we have written about anyway in the world. So he goes back to his, like, if we're going to use, you know, 2019 context, he goes back to his home church where he's comfortable and where he's from, and he explains what God is doing, and he stays with them there and worships with them there. And that's also important, again, for us to just understand who Paul is. Is he does all these things, has this vow, finishes the vow, is, is kind of seems intense to get back to the church in Jerusalem so he can fulfill his vow in the way that he is most comfortable with it. So he goes and does that, then he goes back to his home place, and he seems to rest a bit and talk to the church. Encourages them, tells them what's going on. Very important. Um, and then from there, uh, we're going to keep going. He goes to Antioch, after spending time there, departs, goes from one place to the next, to the region of Galatia and Phygia, strengthening all the disciples. So he goes back where he came through the first and second missionary journeys, right? So now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. Now this, this fervent in spirit phrase, like the literal translation of the Greek is like boiling with spirit, which is interesting. So you, you have water that's flat, right? You, you put it in the pot and you turn the fire on. And then when it gets bubbling, it's chaotic and it's a lot and it's aggressive and it's moving and fast. They're describing this man and how he talks about the gospel and how he goes about his life as boiling with the Spirit, which I think is interesting. He's probably a fairly intense individual, probably a fairly passionate individual to be known as boiling with Spirit. It's pretty nice, actually. It's a pretty good thing for someone to say about you, possibly, to be boiling with Spirit. Anyway, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when they wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he was powerfully refuting the Jews in public, showing them through the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ." So again, we have this guy, Apollos, a native of Alexandria. He comes to Ephesus, and it says he's eloquent, competent in the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord, 
and boiling with spirit. So, again, this introduction of this person, he seems all right. <laughs> right? He's from Alexandria. Anyone know anything about Alexandria? Ancient Alexandria? Library. There's a big library there. That's, that's important. That was what I was looking for, actually. That's, that's a pretty important thing. A library there, and that library seeped through every bit of the culture. So Alexandrians would pride themselves on learning, on reading obscure texts, on being uh, educated. That was, that was very important. So this person is like, he, it sounds in other places when they talk about him in other literature, he's, he's like a true Alexandrian. He's eloquent. He's well-read. He writes really well. So if, if whoever wrote Hebrews later, possibly Priscilla and Aquila, or Apollos, which we're going to find out kind of had the flavor of all three of them because they were so close together. It's, it's interesting. Um, Hebrews has like the least amount of repeated Greek words in all of the New Testament. It's like so difficult to translate because the vocabulary is so diverse. It's very high-level writing. It's just someone really smart wrote Hebrews. So if you were to try to translate First Peter... Awesome and easy, right? Peter's a fisherman. He writes like a fisherman, kind of. It's good, you know, it's fine. But it's, the literature is, it's pretty simple. Like a first-year Greek student could read First Peter and feel like he knows Greek. Then you try to read Hebrews, and there's no absolute chance that you can do that because it's very difficult. The structure is different. So if, and if Apollos writes that, it, which is why people think he does, because he's really smart, okay? A very good writer, very um, learned, educated individual, Okay? So I know I'm talking a lot about that, but that's super important for him and what we read in the rest of the New Testament and for what kind of happens now in the story. So they find him teaching, and what's it say about his teaching again? He's eloquent, but there's, there's something that he, it says that he only knows what? Baptism of John. Why is that important to know? What did the baptism of John say? What did the baptism of John mean? Go ahead. Yes. Which is what? Jesus came, and not only the Savior, but who else? Yes, the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's this, this idea, and they're going to talk about it further in 19, and we'll see it kind of more uh, direct. But it's this idea of people following, people following the way, not unknowingly, because they know the way, and this, this guy is explaining Jesus as the Christ, but all that this person knows is repentance of sin, which is, first of all, fairly important to know, right? I mean, we agree, it's a great starting point. <laughs> For him to understand John's baptism, to understand the forgiveness of sin, the need to be forgiven, that that. He is a sinful individual, that his way is not the way of the kingdom. To understand that deep in himself, there's something lacking because repentance is needed. All of that is incredibly important, and that's what he knows. But what he doesn't know, what he doesn't know, is that yes, the Savior coming also brought the Holy Spirit, which not only brought repentance, but also brought new life with the Holy Spirit. A new life where, yes, there is repentance, but there is also action. There is also this, this forward thinking, I must find justice with Jesus. I must walk with the Holy Spirit 
I must do this with kind of personhood, right? Very, very important distinction. If all we have is the forgiveness of sins, that is all we probably seek. When we have the forgiveness of sins and life with the Spirit, those are both the things we seek, right? So he has this, and he, he understands this baptism of John, and who comes alongside him? Priscilla and Aquila. And what's it say that they do with and for him? They explain the way more accurately. They took him and they explained the way of God more accurately. Nice. They explain the rest of the story. And here's what's important. Is that the church, we're going to see the church do this at this time. But they articulate it perfectly in their actions, and that's this. On these other journeys, these, we call them missionary journeys Paul is on, Barnabas is on, what the usual model is, is they find a person of peace, and then the word of God goes from them to the people. And that's how it works, right? See it in all these different towns. They find people who are interested, or who have heard a little bit, or who at least want to pray, or at least are intrigued by their story, the experts teach the people. Some of the people believe. It's exciting. and They begin to meet together. And these people, again, are the teachers. And then the people in the congregation, in the churches, in the synagogues, are the recipients. That's how it looks. And it's, it's working well that way. And that's what's happening all over the world with them. Okay? What starts to happen now in the second missionary journey, and what's kind of been beginning, but we see very clearly now, is instead of just people coming to give information and then people believing that information that's given and then those people going somewhere else and transferring the information again, the church begins to teach itself. Community begins to teach community. And it's been beginning and it's been happening, but we start to see it very vibrantly now at this point in Acts. And it starts with the story, it doesn't start, but it kind of comes to the forefront with the story of Priscilla and Aquila taking aside this person and telling them the rest of the story. It's not Paul who does this. It's not Silas. It's not Barnabas and Mark. It's this couple that loves the church and that sees something in this young man and they say, come with us. Come with us. And they teach him the rest of the story. And we, as a church, we, we know in our heads that this is true, but we rarely rely on it as our defining characteristic. A lot of times, we still ask, when we ask about a church, we ask who the pastor is. So we ask. Or we ask what the pastor's like, right? I know people, when they visit churches, um, they'll say, Oh, the church seemed nice. I liked the pastor a lot. Or I didn't like the teaching a lot there. Or the worship leader was great. Or the whatever, right? That's what we say still. And we know, though, in our heads, we know deep down what should matter is does the church disciple each other? Does the church disciple itself? Are there disciple makers in the midst of those people? Is it that church's character to learn from each other, right? We, we say it all the time. We do. We, we try to, at least. Hopefully, for the love, you've heard this here. Hopefully. 
that we want to be learners. We want to be disciple makers. We want to be missionaries, right? We want to be family. Those are the things. Those are the four things to us that are most important to us. Yet how rarely do we rely on them if we're going to move forward? How often is it something so embedded in the actions and in the life of us that that is our defining characteristic? That people come alongside each other and take people along and say, let's, let's learn the rest of the story together. How often is that? How often, and I'll tell you straight away, the, the thing I think of in this situation is this. So, when I was in college, I went to a church called Beltway Park in Abilene, Texas. Um, it's, like, it's like popular thing when I was in college at Hardin-Simmons, because ACU was there in Hardin-Simmons and McMurray. It's three universities that have like a biblical program within them. So it's like enlightened by faith, all three of those universities. Um, Beltway Park was a very popular church for college students to go to because there's this really young guy, he's like 27 or 30 or something, named Matt Chandler that taught there. If you grew up in church, you've probably heard of Matt Chandler. He's an amazing speaker. He's, he's a really brilliant guy. He's very passionate. You would probably say he was like boiling with spirit. He's loud and hilarious and wonderful and passionate and great. And he led this Bible study in Abilene called Grace Bible Study. And there'd be like a thousand college students every Tuesday there. And it was just an amazing time. And it felt, it felt vibrant and alive and great. So a lot of college students would go to the college ministry there because he would teach every Sunday morning, right? So you would get this, this like, exciting, everyone looking forward to it. It was just this, this passionate thing we, we all wanted to go to, right? So we go to that, and then during my freshman year, and a lot of our freshman years there, you know, hearing about that, you would go there. Well, he leaves to plant this church in Flower Mound that's now doing amazing, and it's wonderful. And this, this other college pastor, this younger, even younger guy named Doug Stevens, became the college pastor, and, of course, what usually happens in that situation is the college students go from, like, a thousand college students at this one church to, like, 300 very quickly, right? Doug Stevens is a wonderful guy, a great teacher, for real, also great, just, just not the same person. He's not the figurehead. But Doug Stevens, to me, was this wonderful, thoughtful, like, monastic-ish, interesting person um, I'd probably been to the church a few times because personally it wasn't my favorite because it was like popular and famous, but I was comfortable there. So I would go and like hide in the back sort of as a college student. So I was figuring out if I was going to end up doing church or not for real and all this stuff. And Doug Stevens came along and really kind of just said, let's, let's walk to it. He, I mean, randomly, I don't think I'd had maybe two conversations with him ever in my whole life. And just one day he said, hey, I've been thinking about you a lot actually. And I was like, Really? Do you remember my name? That's interesting that you're thinking about me. I don't, I don't think we know each other's last names here, you know? So he says, I've been thinking about you. What if we get together once every other week and have breakfast and just talk about life? I really want you to like, talk with me about the kingdom of heaven. And I was like, sure. That sounds great. And I tried to play it cool deep inside. It's pretty awesome. Someone named Doug Stevens wanted to hang out with me and talk about the kingdom. And he acted like he wanted to learn from me too, which was surely, I mean, he acted like it was true, so it might have been, but there was nothing to teach on my end. I I had nothing. And so we just hung out together. We spent time together. And I didn't know this. He was doing this with like 10 other people and would start to get us together like once a quarter, once every six months. And not just teach us, 
But he expected us to lead and teach ourselves. He expected us to bring something to the table with him to talk about the kingdom. He's like, I want you to tell me something about the kingdom I don't understand next time we meet together. Can you do that? Something you know that I probably don't know. Can you teach me something? I was like, I have no, no, still. The answer is still no. I don't know anything. You know, I'm, I really don't. But I would try. Every, every week and a half, we'd get together and do that. And to the point of one day where it's Sunday morning at like 8 in the morning, and he calls me, and he, I think, pretended to be sick. I was like, hey, can you teach the college worship service this morning? And I was like, this Sunday? Like, it's like 8 o'clock. It starts at 9.30. And he was like, I know. I really need you to. I don't feel well. I was like, how unwell are you? Like, <laughs> you need to be in the hospital right now if I'm going to do this, you know. So I went. He showed up later, grinning. And it went fine. It went fine. He was probably sickish. Or probably just wanted to put me in a situation where he just, I don't know. But it was this, this idea... And what happened to the college students there and happened to the college program at that time was very different than it happened. With, and I'm not saying Matt didn't disciple people. He actually discipled this guy, Doug. He, he was a wonderful person, too, and did that. He didn't, like, love the fact that he was a figurehead. It wasn't that at all. But it just looked very different when Doug Stevens decided to, to like, force the church to teach itself. And I'm so forever grateful for that in my life. As a 20-year-old, this person tricked me into teaching at Beltway Park one day, right? The other part, though, that we need to understand is that, and I I mean this the way I'm going to say it, if we choose to not live this way, Priscilla and Aquila have too much going on, or they're too tired, or they don't feel like it, it's not like the church doesn't just move forward. It's actually at a detriment. When the church doesn't work this way, it's detrimental to the cause and to the kingdom. And we, we, I don't think we believe that sometimes. I think we believe that if we choose not to bring some alongside of us, or we choose not to act, if we choose to not be disciple makers, if we choose to not be teachers and learners both, if we choose to go against just consuming what someone else may have for us, we feel like, we don't have to do that because someone else is going to do that. Or we don't have to do that because look at the way church has been going for a thousand years. It hasn't been doing that that we know of, right, in our, in our mind. And we say it's okay if we choose not to do this. But it, it's really not. It is at a detriment if the church doesn't teach and learn together. If you don't disciple me, I am at a detriment. Really. If I choose not to learn from you, it is detrimental to my, my family and my sons and our life. When we choose to withhold because we're tired from someone else, if we choose to say, you know, I, yes, in my head, I've thought about it a few times. I want to bring them alongside of us. I need to have them over for dinner and make it a consistent thing for us to care for this person or for this couple. I really want us to do that. I want us to learn from them or I want them to learn from us, whatever. If if we feel that way and we ignore that and push that down, that is allowed. It is allowed for us to do that, but we are all at a detriment. The church at Ephesus would have been at a serious detriment if Priscilla and Aquila don't take this guy along and say, you need to know the rest of the story. Yes, you are wonderfully eloquent. Yes, you are the smartest person in any room. Yes, 
You are, you are learned and wonderful and boiling with spirit. Yes, you are okay as is, but there is more to draw out of you. The kingdom of heaven wants even more from you, and I think you can even learn something different from our life come alongside of us. If they, they didn't have to do that, he was fine, but Ephesus wouldn't have been fine. The church there needed the Apollos that was post-Priscilla and Aquila. Needed it. The church at Ephesus didn't need Apollos that knew half the story. They needed the one that had been brought under this, this couple's wing. They needed the one that had been taught. The world needed that there. I know that sounds dramatic, but I mean it. And Priscilla and Aquila easily could have said, he's too intense for us. I don't know if he'll listen. He may think we're pitying him, or he may think we're acting like we know more than him, or who knows what their argument would be. Oh, we don't have time. We have to make so many tents this week. You know, whatever, right? I'm so busy. This is not the best time for us to take this Apollos with us. It's just not the right time. If they do that, the church at Ephesus suffers. And they don't know that then, (laughs) you know? They're not like trying to, they they may be trying to do this grand thing for the world, but I mean, I I doubt it. They probably just wanted to love this person. And the, the repercussions of that were beautiful. The repercussions of a church that disciples each other is is really beautiful. It just takes intentionality and purpose, a little bit of awkwardness probably in the beginning. (laughs) That's what it takes for that to happen. And we're seeing it begin here, not begin here, but be explained more readily, I guess, or whatever word, here. And we're going to start to see that all over the place, which is, which is a really interesting transition in the church. In a very short time, it goes from the, the people that know giving information to those who don't to everyone exchanging information together and learning and growing and living together. I just want us to be aware of that, and here's the deal with that, is, again, that is an all-of-us-together-us thing to do. <laughs> That's not a... Let's pray that three people start doing that at our church. That's not what that is. You know, that's the same thing, just you know, three people instead of whatever else. And so I want us to look for that. I want us to pray through that. I want us to, to think about that. And I, I want us to be learners from each other. Okay? Um, I want us to just to, to stop there and pray through that. Uh, we're going to get into him on his, like, the, this third missionary journey after this in chapter 19, but it's, I just think it's an interesting place for us to focus and stop and then restart on that, okay? So let's do this. We're just going to move right into communion. Let's stand together.